0: Today, I am joined by Emmett Penny. Emmett is the host of the Exhaust podcast, uh, editor-in-chief at GridBrief, contributing editor at Compact, and nuclear barbarian. Welcome, Emmett.
1: Hey, great to be here, Alex. Thanks so much.
0: Uh, I'm really happy to have you on. Uh, this has uh, been kind of floating in, in my consciousness for a while to, to create this episode, to bring you on so you could deliver your unique expertise about something that is a little bit less airy-fairy than yeah. the general subjects that this podcast covers. Not that they're not serious, uh, sure. but they're a little bit more, you know, less tied to the brass tacks of living life in reality. Um and your beat is energy. That's right. Um, bef- before we start with with all of your pronouncements about energy, how did you get this beat? How how did how how come this is interesting yeah, to how you? How come?
1: That's a great question. <laughs> I, I ask myself that all the time. Um, yeah. So, like, um, uh, I've, I've in some way I have no idea how I ended up here. I have like two liberal arts degrees, right? <laughs> like, I'm not a technical guy um, or any of that. Uh, What happened was in 2017, I wrote a piece for Paste Mm -hmm. magazine when I was still very much like a DSA type um, called uh, Lecture Porn, The Vulgar Art of Liberal Narcissism. Um, And that was sort of in the moment where there was a big inventory taking on the mistakes the lefts and Democrats had been making, uh, especially after 2016. And I was just working at a bookstore. And I got a DM about it uh, from a guy named Michael Schellenberger. And he was like, what are you doing right now? And I was like, "Uh, nothing, which was a lie. I was working, but I didn't have a phone. It was broken (laughs) and I didn't have the money to replace it because I worked at a bookstore. Um, So I gave him the number for the bookstore I worked at in Santa Fe and had the shipping guy Cover the register while I talked to him for an hour and a half, pretending I was doing a Penguin Random House order. Every time my boss got near me, um, and he was sort of like, "What are you interested in?" And I can't even remember what I said. And he was like, "Yeah, I don't care about that." Uh, he was like, <laughs> what? "He was like, What do you think about What do you think about uh, nuclear?" And I was like, "That it's bad." Uh, I was like, "Do we even still do that anymore?" And uh, he was like, "Okay, here's why it's awesome." Like, blah blah blah. He was like, "Why don't you come out?" Um, he's like, "Why don't you read these books?" He's like, don't take it from me. There's a lefty guy, Lee Phillips, you might be interested in, read his book, check all this out. Um, And then why don't you come out to the Bay Area and we'll see if we can't work together. And that didn't pan out. I got to get nuke-pilled and meet people (laughs) who've now become lifelong friends. Um, But it wasn't until a few years later uh, when my wife and I had lost our jobs working for a company that fell apart and she started her own business and I called him and I said, hey, you should hire me because we'd remained friends. And he said, you're right, I should, because I'm about to write a book. And that book was Apocalypse Never. And so that working on the research team for that really gave me um, sort of a baseline of knowledge that I just did not have before. You know, like I was a fan of nuclear, I'd been convinced, uh, but I still didn't, hadn't gotten my reps in. And then COVID happened. Uh, I didn't know what to do. I had lost my job again. I started exhaust my podcast about why nothing feels possible. And then he called me up when he wanted to write a second book, San Francisco, uh, towards the end of his drafting process. And he was like, Hey, I just need you to look over it and to like, give me some feedback. So I worked on that book too. And then after that, it was sort of like, well, what am I going to do? Like that was a contract. And I decided that I wanted to sort of create my own spin on what a nuclear future would look like. I am unlike a lot of people in the nuclear space. Uh, I don't believe in the progressive view of history. Um, and so I don't have the sort of utilitarian easing the pain of life by supplying material goods. I think material goods are good, but they're not everything. Um, and I'm like not convinced that, uh, human nature is in flux towards progress. Um, and uh, I had uh, I just had like this different view of it, where I don't think big things are evil necessarily. Um, I'm very concerned with big national project projects, and I think that um, long time horizons, which nuclear sort of requires, are beneficial to the long- term health of society, because I would very much like to see America as a society continue. And so uh, that's what I wanted to bring to nuclear advocacy. And then I sort of do that on the side. I write all of this other stuff about nuclear or the grid. And then I've founded, co founded a company called Grid Brief, where I do a daily newsletter and I'm the editor in chief there. So that's sort of like the shortest possible version of how I got here a mix of like accident, luck, um, and instinct. And, uh, yeah, now it's my life's work. This is, I wake up thinking about like gas flows from Nord Stream 1 or whatever. Um, so that's my life now.
0: That's good. I'm, I'm happy you're, you know, you're the person, you know, on the job thinking about these things because <laughs> there's not many of you, um, at least as, as far as I know. That's why, that's why you know, a, a, a big purpose of this episode is to illuminate, you know, um, people like me who d- don't know much about this subject and uh, probably some, I'm sure some, some are knowledgeable, but some, the people who don't know everything about the energy grid and how it all hangs together, um, you know, listen, listen to this, guys. So. <laughs> Um, what do you think is the kind of the most important blind spot that people have related to to energy and the grid like what's what's kind of an aha moment for for a lot of people that I just don't get
1: yeah hold on let me let me think because I've had a few aha moments sort of going through, and I think what's difficult for people to understand is sort of the electric grid as a system. It has certain inputs and the things it needs. So like in the U.S., it needs to stay at like 60 hertz so that it can send, you know, electricity down the wires so they can show up in your house. Uh, That's a very shortened version of what happens there. Um, And you can't just do whatever you want to it. I think there's sort of like a cavalier nature, especially when it comes to things like uh, renewables, that you can sort of just put in whatever inputs on the grid and then it sort of all works out. And that's because the process is like very obscured from you, you know. Uh, Like by the time the juice gets to your house, you know, I've said before, uh, there's no such thing as like an electric sommelier. (laughs) They can't be like, oh, that's from coal or that's from wind (laughs) and solar or whatever. So, I mean, and part of it's just the difficulty of the process. You know, like I have some good baseline knowledge. I know people who know way more than I do. You know, like I wouldn't even deem to debate them on uh, issues that they know more about because I like what could I possibly Put up against them, and so part of it's just like the moat around expertise—that's uh, the problem there, you know. And I guess I would say the other thing is like I don't think people really appreciate how important energy is to the economy, and we've lived with it for so long. Like this is something I sort of toy with in my head. Like modernity is old now, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, and uh, we're in this like weird position, especially right now with everything going on, where we have to figure out how to steward the industrial commons, uh, which has supplied us with a paradox, which is the idea of unending novelty through the refinement of technique and the creation of commodities, uh, which sort of erases the past or makes it feel like an etch-a-sketch while needing to have these sort of like longer time horizons where you can take care of these things for posterity. Um, and yeah, so I think that those are some of the blind spots that, that go on. At least those were some of mine once I started getting into this stuff. You know, um, it's, it's hard. It's a hard topic to access, I would say. It has taken me a lot of work, and I'm sure people smarter than me could get there faster. Uh, but it is inobvious how these things fit together. And I still learn about it every single day.
0: Yeah. So the kind of the first thing you mentioned is the fact that you can't just be pouring electricity into the grid willy nilly. Um, is that the reason that there are, there are blackouts uh, across the U.S.?
1: Yeah. So right now, about like two thirds of the U.S. is under threat of blackouts, perhaps. Um, OK, uh, let me figure out how to approach this. Uh, so. Yes and no is the answer to that question. Um, what happened in america is over the course of several decades we have restructured our electricity system it used to be just major monopolies that had regional control and did not compete and they got a guaranteed rate of profit and it was their job to provide reliability and build things now there are all sorts of reasons people got upset with that um in the 70s especially When the energy crisis hits and just hammers the utility industry, I mean, along with everything else. And there was sort of this green movement lying in the wings that was very small as beautiful. And through some decisions made during Carter's tenure in office uh, into the 90s, especially with the substantial oomph provided by uh, Jeff Skilling and Ken Lay over at Enron, we broke the grid into a series of spot markets. And the way that works is various generators, solar, wind, nuclear, coal, natural gas, whatever, bid into an auction every five minutes to provide juice to the grid. And one price, that's the clearing price. Some people get priced out and then everybody else gets paid whatever the clearing price is. So you might be asking yourself, what the hell does that have to do with blackouts? That sounds like it should be fine. Well, electricity is a little bit different than things like natural gas. You can't really store it. It expires in microseconds. And the system has to keep thrumming. If there are interruptions, it creates cascading problems. Now, the way that these markets have interacted with subsidies for renewables and things like that is that they have added entropy to a very complex process. So how have they added entropy? It's no secret or surprise that when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine, wind and solar don't produce. So when they drop off the grid, they need something to ramp up to meet demand so that it keeps operating at that 60 Hertz. And what's that gonna be? Just in time, natural gas. Now let's add another layer of problems to this. In order for that market to behave, Allegedly, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in America, cannot dictate who builds what. And the ISOs, the independent system operators that oversee the auction houses for this bid, can't tell people to keep fuel on site or prefer one form of generation over to another because that is putting their thumb on the scale and creating unfair market conditions. So these things have combined to fragilize the grid. And we can see uh, how that works when we take a look at lots of coal and nuclear coming off the grid. So reliable energy gets priced out because it can't really compete with, basically, I'll pay you to take my renewable energy and Mm -hmm. fast-acting natural gas, um, which means that the balancing problems become acute. And when natural gas gets very expensive, as it is right now, when supplies get tight, that creates a serious problem. For the grid so that's where we are today in capsule it's a very difficult problem the rules for the grid are very arcane they're very surprising and non-intuitive i'm not sure most people know that uh, that ERCOT, the uh, electricity reliability council of texas which sort of oversees their grid is, in true texas fashion is not under the aegis of FERC. They make their own decisions, right? Uh, But PJM, which is where I am in northern Illinois and parts of the seaboard, the eastern seaboard, uh, New England has its own ISO, New York has its own ISO, Uh, California has its own ISO, and then there's uh, the Midwest Independent System Operator, which is probably the most beleaguered right now, and then there's the Southwest Power Pool. So that's sort of what we're looking at when we see how it's been broken. Now. There's some things that happened, some complications this didn't really kill monopoly utilities. A lot of that has to do with people getting freaked out by the two thousand California electricity crisis when Enron just ran the boards in California um, but uh, that's where we are now, and it's a, it's a very hard problem to solve, let alone understand
0: yeah, so the, the, the main problem as it sounds to me is that by you know tr- not trying to eliminate monopolies but essentially kind of disbanding the, the central Note of, of coordination, you have layers upon layers of agents that have different incentive structures mm-hmm. that get them payouts, and they all essentially feed off of the health of the of the core system until it breaks in different points. But That's right. there's no one really to patch them up because it's not their job, is it?
1: Yeah, no. The buck always gets passed. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, even some of the guys who were the architects of this, like Paul Joskow, who co-authors with Richard Schmalency, Markets for Power, almost at the behest of the Reagan administration at the beginning of the 80s. They're sort of like, how would we do what we did with airlines and trucking or whatever with electricity? Um, they sort of admit that, like, first of all, transmission just is a monopoly. So that's the wires. You can't do anything about that. (laughs) Like, that has to be... No one wants to go back to the late 19th century or early 20th century, where there are just, like, gobs of spider webs of wires all competing and, you know, blocking out the (laughs) sky, basically, from from view. But now, a couple, three years ago, in an interview at MIT... Joskau pointed out that the problem I just illustrated uh, was not going to work in the long run. Fossil generate, basically wind and solar were free riding off of fossil and nuclear generation and that enough of those things would shuffle off the grid that we'd be facing the problems we're facing right now.
0: Mm, So this was predicted. I mean, it was clear to see for people who were in the know
1: yeah, yeah. And the more honest brokers, like I like Joscow. I disagree with the entire project, but I think he's I think he's an honest man um and a very sharp. Uh he he's been very candid that these were going to be problems, that it was gonna be a dance between regulation and deregulation. And uh you know, it's it's a it's a there's a big bootleggers and baptists thing that's happening with the grid now that is uh, quite unfortunate. And again, this is the question I come to in American politics generally, but it feels like there's just a famine of people. uh, There's like too many people in charge of things and not enough people responsible for things. Mm. You know, um, if we take a look at like who benefits from wind and solar, it tends to be like financiers or big multinationals that love to sue like middle American townships for putting up resistance against, especially wind farms. like No one likes that shit. No one likes living near it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's sort of like, who's standing up for these people? Who's, you know, my, my worry is that this is the industrial commons, the grid, as I've said before, everybody needs it. You know, I'm sure as a mother, you're like, I don't want to be like washing my clothes at 3 a.m. I want to be in bed, you know, like, I don't want to have to rearrange my whole life to figure out when electricity is going to be cheapest or whatever. You just want it to work. And when a society's elite, so like these finance guys or whatever, um, start to see their own advantage as undermining the very societal structures that have given them their advantages, that's when I worry a society is in decline. And when I take a look at the American grid, that's what I see.
0: Yeah. It it does feel like this is not specifically, you know, just the grid. Like it feels like yeah. this type of rot, um, just essentially in terms of who is in charge, who is responsible, what are the incentives for the people who actually get to exert power in this cascading, you know, headless morass that everyone's working in. Uh, and it feels like, the easiest way is to just eat your way through whatever was built in the past. like you know you see this in other things like you know from building bridges to developing vaccines to all sorts sure. of things even even in the private sector, it's not like you know uh, tech is booming. tech is booming in uh, whatever limbic trap industry it's not booming in, in actual you know productive directions and and especially like long-term, productive things. Uh, or, you know, sinecures like uh, like renewables. <laughs> it's booming in, the, in yeah. those directions.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think something that, like, is hard to understand or hard to appreciate, certainly it took me a while to really figure this out, is like where environmentalism fits in all of this and what role they play. And they were big boosters of electricity markets because they knew that it would allow wind and solar, smaller operators, to compete against the big guys and that they could just dump some subsidies into it. So like Amory Lovins over at the Rocky Mountain Institute, Ralph Kavanaugh over at the Natural Resources Defense Council, these guys have been for the free marketization of the American energy systems before most people who write for like the National Review got there or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, And I think that's something that people need to internalize because it's very easy to say like, oh, like you know, uh, the left doesn't, there's a certain type of conservative. It's like the left hates markets and environmentalism is on the left. They ask for green new deals and stuff like that. I mean, first of all, the amount of private capital lining up out the door to take advantage of whatever's going to happen in the green new deal is like pretty staggering, but you need to look at the track record and even what's happening right now with the Tennessee Valley Authority. Right now, there are environmental NGOs that are trying to get people onto the board of the TVA so that they can start prying it apart because it has a monopoly and expose it to greater competition from these mom-and-pop hyper-subsidized wind and solar firms. Like These people don't care about the progressive legacy. That is not what they are in it for. They just want to build wind and solar because they think the world's going to end, and because they're paymasters... Tend to be the financiers; they get all the tax credits. Really love building these things. I mean, Warren Buffett's on record as saying, "Like the only reason you build a wind turbine is for the tax credit; otherwise, they don't make sense." Why would you want a generator of power that works sometimes?
0: Uh, uh, it's it's uh yeah it, it it feels like you know the all all of the incentives are pointing this way. Like I. I from, from your perspective, because you said you kind of have a, a, a bit of a vision or um, kind of a, mm-hmm. an idea of, of, you know, what this might look like if it were to work. I mean, what, what does it look like if it were to work?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a question that, um, so I just, actually, I turned in the final edits on this today. A long form, piece like almost 8,000 words or something like mm-hmm. that to American Affairs, sort of like on, sort of like a brief history of the grid from basically the 50s till now. And, uh, at the end of it, I'm, I'm very (laughs) frustrated, sort of like, uh, I don't really know who the constituency is that's going to reform this. And that makes it really hard to make recommendations, right? Because like anybody can sort of like LARP and be like, oh, you know, it would be cool if we did X, Y, or Z. And one of the frustrations that I've had, and this has tempered even some of my own vision or whatever, is talking about what could happen rather than what is happening you know, because this stuff is happening now. So I'll say this, like, it's very difficult to undo something that's been happening for decades. And this has been happening for decades. I think there needs to be basically some form of centralization, whether that's like one big national spot market, which I'm kind of adverse to, because I think the idea for energy markets is, well, electricity markets is flawed to begin with. I get the spot market for natural gas. That makes a little more sense to me. Um, but I really do think that there has to be clear accountability for decisions. Like somebody has to be on the hook. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know how that works. Like America may as well have another measure for electricity, which is lawyers per kilowatt hour. Um, because there's so many like regulators and stuff. It's like a <laughs> lapidary you know, system of insiders who do all this stuff from the public eye. So how you get there... Um, is difficult. So I'd say like the tamest vision I would have is one where people are held accountable for system integrity um, and that that is like clear and demonstrable to the public. Because I think the knock-on effects of a lack of accountability undermine any broader issues in the long run. Yeah. Because they're demoralizing. They're exhausting. I can't tell you how much I hate writing about electricity markets. It is the least fun part of my job. You know, I mean, I'm a, like, email guy, like, right? I've worked manual labor. Like, this is pretty cushy. You know, like, I like it. It's not a super hard job. But that is definitely the worst part of it. Uh, it, it Because it's it's labyrinthine. It's like a shitty Borges story about numbers. It sucks. You um, know? <laughs> uh, and it makes me want to rip what's left of my hair out. Uh, because I really... I mean, this is where I might sound sen- sentimental, but there is something about this whole situation that makes me overacquainted with a tragic sense of life and history. And people might think that's overdramatic, but unbundling successful systems that have been accumulated over time has unforeseen effects that are really hard to fix later on. And I don't think that there's a lot of appreciation for how that is. I mean, I really think that that would be like a conservative value around this type of thing, that you can't just do whatever you want, that you might want to err on the side of prudence for this, um, for knock-on effects, and because you don't know who's going to take advantage of the new framework. And there were plenty of problems with the monopoly utility model, for sure, but... It was at least clear whose fault it was when things went south. And I'm sure your listeners, especially the ones in America and elsewhere, feel this pervasive sense of foreboding or dread when they think of anyone being on the hook for almost anything at all if they're in power. Right? I mean, we what do we need to do? The rosary of this, like the Epstein stuff. (laughs) You know, like you just sort of go through. And it seems like nobody. There's just no feedback mechanism. And that really degrades trust and atomizes people and I think has that deleterious impact on the nature of citizenship.
0: Yes. And essentially what the argument, again, comes back to, uh, you know, uh, a a fan favorite of of the show, kind of the Curtis Yarvin model, the idea that essentially what you're arguing for is like energy Caesar, you know there needs to be someone yeah. a person there even you know a, a kind of a plenty potentiary person who actually you know has the power but also is up on the pedestal ready for people to sledgehammer him down if if that's if that's you know that's what's what's called for at one point uh but yeah i think it's it's kind of all downstream from this this idea that um things at this point need to be managed you know mm-hmm. th- there's not really you don't really need to exert power, so not there's no real power in the system. There's only management, and mm-hmm. you know if there's a failure in management, we might you know replace the manager, or you know investors might retract their money. But, you know stock prices, everything's very rational in this system, where you know everything's downstream from a certain science of management of these things. Uh, but the problem is they're completely mismanaged if there is no one in power, if there's no actual. CEO at the top of the, the the chain of this, who actually knows what's going on and has veto power for all these decisions, then it's you know you could throw all that all that knowledge out the window because it just it, it just erodes in time.
1: Yeah, the way I tend to think about this is oh, during the post-war era when there's sort of like the truce between labor and management, and when everybody understands that growth is sort of what America needs to recover from World War II because nobody. Nobody wants to deal with another post-World War I-style recession. Um, it's seen as too like, just a too dangerous thing to experience, and the labor strikes that happen as soon as Victory Day is declared uh, really freak people out. So they have to figure out how to get everybody on board, and this sort of creates the post-war glorious 30 years, whatever we want to call it, consensus. But I think we should understand that this is also like the accumulation of the managerial class, right? That's sort of where this all goes. Now, in the 60s and 70s, there's the big crisis of legitimacy about this, and there are legitimate problems with what happens with the managerial class. And everything gets so folded into the war machine in America that it's really hard to disaggregate the good from the bad. You know, like, I I remember I was talking to a Vietnam vet, um, in grad school and he was talking to me about drinking in a bar in Saigon with some contractor from, you know, some big steel company. And, this guy who's telling me the story is sort of like, you know, this, basically this sucks shit. (laughs) Like this war is awful. It's brutal. There's no point to it. Uh, My life is hell. I don't want to be here. And the guy was basically like, yeah, but it's good for U.S. steel and paid his tab and walked out. (laughs) You know, and the turn away from managerialism uh, didn't actually get rid of it. What happens over the 70s, and especially as like cyber culture sort of starts to become a thing, right? It's no surprise that the 60s 60s produces a lot of people who are early cyberspace adopters is uh, a tick towards decentralization as a way to solve the managerial problem. But really what that did was create like this rhizomatic managerial structure without any accountable hierarchies. And that's basically what we deal with when we're like online on these major platforms. Right? I mean, it's sort of like uh, a million Plutarchian founders that have their HR department that runs your discourse, depending on how they massage the algorithm, uh, wherever you may be. And this problem exists not just in the digital space, as we've been talking, but elsewhere. And it seems to be part of a theme that happens after the 70s. I'm sort of like done thinking about the long 60s, as the people used to call it, you know, and I, I really think it's the long '70s. Like, that's really the hinge to me about what changes in uh, American business and culture. You know, because like uh, Ford, Carter, and then Reagan are all sort of picking up on the same themes headed in that direction. You know, it's not like Ronald Reagan gets into office and there's this radical break into, you know, neoliberalism or whatever the fuck that's supposed to mean.
0: Yeah. And, and in your estimation, what's what's the next phase of uh, of this? Because it feels like, Oof. you know, like <laughs> I guess your podcast kind of uh, explains your your personal feeling about sure <laughs> about enough. the situation. Yeah. Exhaust. But still, um, some something's got to give. It, f- it feels like we're in a, in a tumultuous time. It feels like, you know, some sort of change is on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what comes out of this?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is the hard school of experience right now. Um, And I think a lot of people were trading on the accomplishments of the past and those accomplishments are running dry. And a lot of people like Germany are sort of waking up to a much ruder reality than they imagined living in. So I think really what happens is these societies that can pull ahead in the future are the societies that can wake up to this reality faster. And the U.S. has some very great advantages here, right? Like if you can sort of like overcome the obstacles at the EPA or the Department of the Interior, like we could be pretty energy sovereign if we want to be. You know, like that's a political possibility for us as well as an economic one. Um, And so I would hope that... Our ruling class is not entirely immune to the sobering impact of real-world events, um, but they might be. I mean, I don't know. So that's really what I think. Like going forward, you can't just say microchips or potato chips. It doesn't matter what we make. You know, it it does matter. In fact, whether or not you have like a solid energy economy that is your own, where you're not dependent on entirely dependent on neighbors or largely dependent on neighbors to run your society. Um, and I do think it matters whether we have a big service economy or whether we have something a little bit more productive, say, you know, I think it matters whether, uh, what portion of Americans are basically servants and what portion of Americans are workers. Um, I think that that has sort of cascading effects on morale and on a sense of civic dignity and civic responsibility. So societies that can sort of like wake up to that reality, that that's what they need, that uh, they can't just leave it all to chance, and that um, commodities remain king, uh, will do well, I think, in the coming future. Because it's not like things are going to get easier. Not for a while. I mean, we're not even really in the energy crisis right now. If we're being honest, we're in like prices are high and inflation is a little weird. Like after this winter, we're in the energy crisis.
0: So that's what you expect looking at. That's what I expect. The data. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's what I expect, sort of just taking a look at it. Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of what will happen depends on how the Ukraine situation goes. But I mean, that doesn't really seem to be coming to an end anytime soon. Not that I'm aware of anyway. You know, it's I'm not in the halls of power. Like I'm just some guy, what do I know? Uh, but you know, from what I can tell, uh, that's not happening. And like the industries that will shut down, I was calling this the black cascade last fall. Like I thought this was going to be bad in like, I don't know, August or September last year. You know, and then the Ukraine thing happened and I was like, oh, no, (laughs) this is about to get way worse. Because when you see fertilizer industries or chemical industries, like the German chemical industry is basically like we can't conserve anymore. This is it for us. We either have to like abandon our production or do something else like that all flows as inputs into tons of other things. So that creates a lot of problems for everyone else when those things fail. and so, yeah, like, I don't think the Ukraine situation is going to get solved. I think it's clear when we're looking at what's going on with Nord Stream 1. Uh, Russia's already kind of saying this is only going to return to something like, I don't know, 20% production of what it once was. Basically, Europe's going to burn through a lot of its reserves. Uh, there are no friends in a crisis. So they're going to keep what they have when things get cold. Um And it's going to be a dark winter for a lot of people. I really feel for the German people. As frustrated as I've been by their government's willingness to just shut down nuclear plants uh, and refire coal lignite plants, which is just like baffling to me. um, I mean, I don't want anything bad to happen to anybody. You know, this is all so cavalier to me. This is all so short-term thinking that it makes me sick to my stomach. covering some of the things I cover, you know, that's not like a poor me scenario. What I'm talking about is, uh, the health of basically societies that, uh, I otherwise admire.
0: Yeah. It just feels like they're like the adults have, have left the building decades ago. There, there is no one like, there's not that like old guy in the factory who knows how every machine works. He's died like 30 years ago. And oh, people are yeah. just like, you know, make makeshift, you know, daisy chaining shit now. And it really is, you know, like one of those, just, you know, dystopian sci-fi novels where, you know, people find like a math book, you know, five, 300 years after everyone's forgotten what math is. and They try to piece together what these symbols mean. And it's, it's really scary. And it's already happened. It's like we're post-apocalypse at this point.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, we're lucky that we haven't shed all of our institutional knowledge, but I mean... Again, that's like another thing that people have been so casual about, you know, that you can just like everybody, like society is just a salamander, you know, you cut off a limb and it just grows back when you need it. Uh, That's not really how that works. And, you know, I was talking to my um, stepfather who worked in manufacturing for a long time and he said, you know, when some of these plants shut down and then the steel plants have to halt production midway through and they've got these enormously hot tubs that all the steel is in, and then they just have to shut it down, and then all that stuff hardens into it. He was like, Do the guy are the guys that know how to fix that still around? Did they get laid off in the 80s? Like, most of this is running on gray hairs who sort of refused to retire, you know? And, I like, look, I don't want to be overly a Cassandra. I only want to point out that we should have greater respect for the material backbone of our societies. Like that is my number one message, that we should have more regard for the things that we have achieved in the material sphere, not the incredible abundance of commodities or whatever. I don't mean it like that. But the actual forces of production deserve way more care and attention than they have received in the last several decades of at least american existence. It's not that we I mean we still produce things, right? Like here, we we still do. And we should be very very proud of our abilities with things like natural gas. But like there is such disregard for achievement that uh I don't I it, it's just it's baffling to me. It's baffling. I mean, I can't believe that I went through my life so casually just being like, well, that's always going to work. You know, like, I'm not exempt from this. I'm a guy who arrived here.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is uh, actually also an an argument in a way that I'm working on, um, less related to infrastructure, material things, but generally kind of how there are a myriad of commons similar to the Mm infrastructural commons, but, you know, even human relationships, you know, what what has technology then to human, just like dating, things like that, you know, um, just like moral norms, what's common sense, how do you interact with someone face to face, like so many little things that, you know, we've just kind of applied the most corrosive liquefying agent on top of it. And then we're surprised that, you know, nothing works from our bodies to our infrastructure to, to all of it. And, you know, I guess, you know, you're, you're kind of deep in it and you're essentially kind of the cartographer of the the implosion of one of these commons, literally the thing that keeps the lights on. Um, and I can imagine that you are frustrated because you're just essentially learning about a crime that's been committed collect, in yeah. a way collectively that no one's paying attention to. And even when you're going to lay out your case in fine detail, people are going to be like, oh, yeah, well.
1: Yeah, well, we do. <laughs> I, and I, and hey, look, I can't be mad at that response. I mean, I often just throw up my hands. Look, I've been thinking about this a lot. I was sort of like thinking, like, what would I want to talk to Alex about when I get on this podcast? And you know, I was listening to some of your other episodes, and I was thinking about the idea of when assumptions become optional. And what I mean by that is things that we have held to be sort of true for a long time, right? Uh, The achievements that I've sort of talked about that you know they need to be taken seriously and stuff like that. When that just becomes an option in a suite of other equally valid options, it is very difficult to articulate the system of values that buttress the original correct assumption. And usually the only way that you learn why your forebears might be wiser than you is when the pain level really increases. You know, it is kilowatts to bread. That's the metrics here. Kilowatts to bread. And I mean, I'm just, I sound, I sound like a broken record, but like that is so incredibly important, right? Like there's a Roger Pilkey Jr. Who's a climate scientist. He's got this great, uh, I mean, I love Roger, you know, I've, I've followed his work for a while. Um, Not a catastrophist, very clear eyed, you know. And he calls it the iron law of electricity. People will do whatever it takes to keep the lights on. I had a friend who was in Europe before the Ukraine thing for some sort of pro nuclear demonstration. And she was talking to an advocate in Europe who was a climate hawk, right? But this person said, I would burn the last tree on this earth to keep my child warm at night. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I don't think we've taken that reality seriously enough. It has just seemed like an option. It's an option to have industrial society or not, you know, and I'm not saying there aren't like trade-offs. There aren't like problems, you know, like I'm a big Christopher Lash guy. Mm -hmm. I understand that managerialism (laughs) creates like difficult issues that we have to solve. But if I had to pick between regular rolling blackouts and those, like, difficult intellectual, cultural, political problems, I'm picking those problems. I like our problems. I like these problems. I don't like where's the clean water going to come from. That's a problem I don't like. I don't want that. I don't want that for anybody's kids.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's you know kind of the the the, the looming nightmare that I have kind of in the in the back of my head as well. Just, just you yeah, so know. L- l-
1: let me ask you: as a parent, and you're you move back to Romania, right? Yeah. Like that's where. What's what's the situation looking like where you are? How are people talking about it? How do you think about it?
0: I mean, there's kind of like almost like a conspiratorial chat. You know, there's it's very hard to to see exactly what's going on. I mean, prices grow I mean they're they're higher inflation's is higher um you know if I walk down the street that has something changed no i'm I'm just being I'm being made poor by the day but like yeah, sure. you know yeah, there's there's yeah. no uh you know no one yeah. no one's out in the street yet uh but there yeah, is kind tears of there's a
1: pour- pouring out of your wallet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly, slowly but but surely. Um yeah, I mean I've I've stockpiled wood, but maybe that's just me Good. being a little bit but that's the thing. We've we've got like a, a, a chimney like last winter we were a bit like, you know things are going to pop off when we don't know. It's going to be like at the level where, but it might be good, you know, it was minus 20 here last winter and I had like a tiny baby and I thought, you know, if there's a rolling blackouts, we're going to freeze. So we need to do something. So yeah, I mean, a little bit of prepping, a little bit of, you know, I've got like, you know, three months worth of food in my house. That's also because, you know, my mom's my neighbor and she's a hoarder and she stashes everything in my basement. So, you know, it's good. (laughs) It's good to have that. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, like the information infrastructure here is also so weird. I mean, like everywhere. We all get our information from whatever, the AP and stuff. And it's all like, oh, but you know what? The, The government started price fixing, which is a worry because... Price fixing hasn't happened for a few decades here and uh, we knew what happened last time. So now now yeah. the price for energy is fixed and it's like tiered. Like the poorer you are, the less you pay for energy. And then they're essentially rolling it onto industry, which is already in, in deep shit because, you know, obviously there's Ooh. supply chain stuff happening and yeah. it's terrible. So, yeah, um, it's looking bad. It's looking bad. No one's panicking yet, but everyone's just like, you know something's going to happen.
1: Sure, exactly. I mean, this is, I'm glad that you brought up panic because this is one of the things that I think about all the time now, like crisis politics, right? I mean, I'm sure everybody had their fill during COVID of crisis politics um, and sort of like what that does. You know, when I was a kid, I was always confused by FDR's famous phrase, you know, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. I was like, what could that possibly mean? And now when I take a look at the invocation of crisis, sometimes it's necessary. I'm not saying it never is, right? Um, But when I take the culture of fear and the culture of fragility that seems to have become hegemonic, at least in America, um, you start to realize what I think he meant by that. And that he understood that there were second and third order effects to a society where people are overcome by fear, which inhibits their ability to do what might be right or productive or good for society at large. In other words, it is a limiter, perhaps, on civic virtue at a time when it is highly needed. And so that's what I think about when I take a look at this, you know, like how many states of exception are going to have to be declared because things just get too bad. And look, there might be practical reasons, that's just unavoidable. But that should instruct us on who we should be going through that, going through those moments. You know, these things are difficult. They are frightening. But to be overcome by that is to sacrifice the gift itself, the gift of our vitality
0: yes. And it's you know even even being um, kind of denizens of the empire in decline is not the worst position anyone's ever been historically. That's it's right. a very it's a very complex empire, and many things, many big things can go wrong very fast, and not many people know how to fix them. That's for sure. but still, there are things that can, um, be salvaged or that there are things that, you know, we can, we can hang on to and, you know, um, heroic times call for heroic, um, heroic people. Maybe that's, like you said, you know, it might be, um, I don't know an invitation for some for some who feel kind of a, this this emptiness in their lives. I mean, I hope it doesn't have to get too heroic. That's, that's my, I mean, I'm a I'm a mother. Sure, yeah. I don't need to be too heroic. I mean, I love sure. I love my creature comforts and uh, you know the lights especially very important uh, because they tend to connect to everything else. So yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I mean. <sighs> It's so difficult, right? Like what what sort of highly, how do we make a society like the one that we have that is complex in the ways that we've talked about, to borrow from Illich, convivial to human freedom? That's still a very live question, perhaps more live than ever after the uh, shocking interconnectedness of these systems is demonstrated to us as things get tougher. No, We should ask serious questions about that. I'm not saying that I have like answers, but the response to that type of question that I don't like is just get rid of it. Mm-hmm. They don't, <laughs> I don't think that's realistic. <laughs> I think the costs for that are very high and that yeah. no one would want to pay them, you know. Yeah, I mean, um, I
0: there are some people, you know, who kind of nurse uh, anarcho primitivist fantasies, and uh, it kind of sounds cool if you're you know you have like a little shack in the woods next to civilization and then you can pop in and out and you know get your whatever french fries from from the nearest town kind of a Walden style uh, escape but uh I I remember my my husband was reading this book some some sort of sci-fi horror on an EMP and I was like oh an EMP what does an EMP do essentially just like whatever disables Your toaster, and he was like, "No, it's literally like almost like a zombie apocalypse thing." It tells you like how people are just, you know, resorting to cannibalism and stuff. I'm Mm -hmm. like, "Whoa!" And then he just (laughs) kind of read a little bit from it. I was like, "That could happen from a solar flare." Sure, (laughs)
1: yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, i I want to say like a few things about sort of the retreat to Mm -hmm. yeomanism. As an instinct, like, look, going out and living a communal life in the woods is a blessed thing. But early church fathers have been very clear about what that type of life actually means. You don't go out there because it's a retreat from the difficulties of the world. But that is where the darkness is at its height when you are more isolated. It is not just physically demanding. But spiritually, very, very taxing and not for everyone. I I think that gets a little bit undersold in some of those fantasies. And the other thing I would say is like that seems to be a way to avoid the politics, avoid the difficulties that we have to walk through of very old questions that are hard to answer which is who's in charge, who owns what, and who benefits. I think it's clear kind of who benefits from some of what's going on, but maybe they shouldn't be the ones that benefit from what's going on. You know, so I think that while I completely understand and wish anyone luck who is doing that journey in a non-condescending way, you know, because like I said, I think it's a blessed task to do such a thing um i would not recommend that as a societal solution to the troubles we're facing right now
0: yeah it kind of reminds me of the you know idea that you can just you know grow grow your own food and you know be be self-sustaining and things like that if you plug into the supply chain system where you know you get your fertilizer from x and then you get you know there's there's so many like intermediary products that go into yeah just
1: so, sure. Is- well, and the other thing is, like, we can take a look at Lebanon. My uh, friend, good friend and mentor, Robert Bryce, has, has covered this. Um, there's a great Wired article that goes into it, the generator mafias. Right? So Lebanon has a very fragile grid. And there are basically guys that are a mafia who controls who gets access to generators and who doesn't. And they are the main obstacle to a centralized national grid because it would put them out of business. What might that look like in a western context? Well, in California, California, which has one of these spot markets, right? California's diesel backup fleet because the grid has gotten so fragile here, is now equal to 15% of the entire grid. It is 24 times the size of the state's battery fleet. This is the fraying of the industrial commons. Because those diesel backups get put, of course, in poor neighborhoods, but are for the service of the wealthier Californians. That's how this is going to go. There's not going to be some return to homesteading. There's not going to be some more agrarian future out there for us. You know, I'm not saying times won't be difficult. I'm not saying that climate change isn't real. I believe it is. That's why I like nuclear. Um, but we're going to have to learn to adapt, and we're lucky that Prometheanism is a part of the human experience, and we shouldn't denigrate that, just like we shouldn't put it on a pedestal. Practical arts like politics, spiritual elements are of our existence are important too, and I think that's sort of what gets me frustrated about my other uh, friends in the energy space, is that um, it is easy to oversell the importance of the electricity grid because it is so vital but we don't want to lose the human dimension in service of the industrial system either. It's a difficult balance to strike. Nobody's done it perfectly. But again, I'd rather have that problem.
0: Yeah. You mentioned that you're you're not a believer in progress.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, how how does that <laughs>
0: how does that tie into to your beliefs about energy? I mean, um, yeah.
1: So I'm part of it, as I said, that we've always been Promethean. You know, I think that there's a way that people sort of buy into the propaganda of the enlightenment where they think like, oh, the end of like superstition or whatever, like that is not what happened there. Um, you know, or like, you know, the Renaissance is really when we started doing cool shit with technology. It's like, I think you're not respecting the middle ages enough. You know, there's a lot of interesting stuff that gets built and done there, too. This has always been something that we've we've been doing. There's a guy, actually, a uh, Mont and guy, John Constable, who I really like. Um, you know, he and I disagree on all sorts of things, but he's, A, smarter than me. Uh, so uh, I like <laughs> reading his stuff. And B, very, very perceptive. He's this guy who can walk in both worlds. He's humanities guy who covers energy. So I sort of relate to him in that way. But he points out that the industrial revolution isn't really a revolution that the way people think it is. If you look at it, it's really an accumulation of energy over time. And the phrase industrial revolution gets used by people talking about the political situations and the industrial situations in Britain and France, and then in like absorbed into the Marxian framework for how to talk about the coal age, which is nascent and exploding um, at the time that he's writing. But it is really a misnomer, because again, it is, we had all sorts of farming techniques, you know, the original energy policy, all sorts of uh, other things that we were doing that were feeding into the refinement of technique. Now, if you want to reduce progress to the refinement of technique, and I'm sure some do, you can kind of say, like, well, history is progressive. But I don't think that's honest. I think people that say that also mean that there's this moral dimension that's there, that I'm not convinced is there. So if the Industrial Revolution isn't this radical break, but is rather like a you know exponential accumulation of resources, technique, and ability, uh, what does that mean for us? It means that the time horizons get very long. You can't just, it's not like, you know, Michael Scott from The Office, like I declare bankruptcy. You can't just declare an energy revolution, right? You can't, or an energy transition. Nothing works that way. It never has, you know. So when I say that I don't believe in the progress of history, I think we can look to all sorts of horrific things that have happened with the refinement of technique that have always been part of the human experience, frankly. Uh, That doesn't mean things are getting worse. It means that, to some degree, they're still the same, just with new toys. The difficulties of running a society, I think, are relatively the same. Regime types, more or less the same. Again, new toys, new features, new things to think about, but basically the same. And it is our task to gird our society against the forces of entropy. Energy has greatly expanded our ability to do that. You know, like a house is a system. It is the reduction of entropy to serve the family, right? By providing shelter, by all of these things. Say the same thing about the grid. Now, where does that put us now? I have a pet theory. I have nothing to back this up. This is just what I think about when I stare at a wall. That as we have reduced our exposure to entropy in the natural world, which is not nurturing mother, as we've reduced that entropy, we have expanded our psychic entropy. And a lot of that has to come with the problems of modernity, what we were talking about before, the optionalization of everything. This is, I think, our fundamental task today. How do we steward something as liquid as modernity? Is that even possible? how does our regime survive and who gets to be in charge and benefit from it are the livest questions I can think of right now. Mm. And to me, they have nothing to do with the progress of history. Yeah, These are in fact the oldest political concerns you can possibly find.
0: (laughs) No, no, I I, I completely agree. And I feel like there's, um, unfortunately, it seems like this is kind of the conclusion that's, that's looming, that there's almost like a, um, a zero sum balance between how um how much abundance and comfort a population mm-hmm. can have and how much entropy it can, you know, until the balance swings back. Uh and then that that whole abundance and comfort gets wiped out just because of, you know, the, the kind of the, the the inner entropy, the psychological entropy that just kind of, sure. you know, hollows out the individual that would be in charge of the, the grid <laughs> or sure. whoever. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean Yeah, it's the rice patty to rice patty in three generations thing, you know, Um, that's sort of, that's sort of the problem. Uh, (laughs) um, And yeah, so that's an old problem. But look, I'll put it this way, right? So uh, here's an interesting fact. If we're worried about climate change, if we understand that people will do whatever it takes to get electricity and there are good reasons why they would want it uh, that we sort of take for granted, those of us who have it. Um, what are we going to do? I mean, this is part of why I like nuclear, right? Because they're just going to build coal. That's the deal. The amount of coal that's exploding by this time next year will have canceled out America's emissions reduction since 2005. So we can either do like an Atoms for Peace 2.0 where we figure out how to help the developing world build nuclear, because otherwise they're building coal. Or, Rosatom, Russia's national nuclear entity, which is, by the way, the best in the world, will do it for them. Anybody who's interested in grand strategy or even concerned about what a multipolar world might mean maybe would want some leverage there.
0: Mm, Yeah. This is... uh, (laughs) This is the, the main uh, multipolar question, and not only on this, and, you know, it, it might be the case that Russia is not alone in this. <laughs> I'm sure China might have something to say about Oh, China's this.
1: great, too. They, they're building. <laughs> I mean, just nobody can, can compare. Like, look, Rose Adams, a freak of nature. It gets broken apart in the 90s and then reformed other, under Putin. I mean, like, you know, in the early aughts, for people who don't know, he really restructures the Russian energy economy. And I have to say, like how that gets handled is very deft. Like, I'm not a fan, but I do respect
0: uh, it, this work that level in of particular. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I do respect what happens there. You know, that's why Gazprom is such a big titan in Europe uh, right now and why it's such a big problem, right? It gives him a certain amount of power. And they like re congealed to be this international powerhouse that delivers quality nuclear reactors on time, on budget, for people who need them, people who don't have the insane fears of radiation that Americans have, for reasons I go into in a very long piece in American Affairs, you can go read, um, uh, and who want those kilowatts and who don't want the coal. I mean, if you get a nuclear plant, that does so much for your society. It adds a level of labor sophistication, of ability, which by the way, doesn't need to be super credentialed. The only thing the Simpsons get right about nuclear energy is that somebody without a college degree can support a big family and own a house, right? That's what's beautiful about nuclear to me, is that the big and the small work together. It creates an ecosystem of trade organizations, local pipe fitters, unions, and stuff like that around it. That's so why I call them industrial cathedrals that can last for up to 100 years and supply that sort of community togetherness through labor that really matters. There's no surprise that these countries want this. It's no surprise that our Deccan society has lost sight of what that might mean to us and why that should be important.
0: Yeah, it's, it's incredibly efficient because, I mean, looking into, um, you know, kind of what are what energy mixes in Romania because I wasn't aware of that and just saying we've got two reactors in one place uh, and they supply almost 20% of all of the energy in the country.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> and you could get even more out of it if you, so And China and Russia are already working on this, on taking um, the excess steam from nuclear and turning it into a form of district heat. Like, i mean we're we're talking about a level of sophistication and provision for society again, through important dignified labor uh that I think is very, very vital to societal health, on not just the physical commodities and goods front you know um and 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 that's that's part of where I think we are. We're sort of faced with these choices, and when we look at our leadership class, there's much to be disappointed by anywhere in the world. The fact that Germany's even in this situation is a black mark on anyone who's been in charge over there. I, it is like, it's just so fucking stupid. I'm sorry. Like, so reckless, you know? Like, so reckless. Such elite decadence, you know? That German minister who ends up working for Gazprom after cutting these deals. it's so gnarly. And the thing is, is it hurts Germany's neighbors as well. You know, like Europe is pretty connected energy wise. And look, they're not the only ones. France, in a way, even less, more dumb and less efficient than Germany, uh, pursued a similar energy vinta policy, which has led to uh, the denigration and lack of care, disrespect for their incredible nuclear fleet, right? And now it's running into corrosion problems that people don't know how to solve. Well, there are a lot of places in Europe right now that are trying to conserve their gas supply, and they could really use exports from France's EDF to stay afloat right now. France could use that, frankly. That's why they're making a move to nationalize it now.
0: Yeah. There are there any serious arguments um, against nuclear that you think deserve um attention or you know is there any argument that you think you know is map that's that's a good objection or a useful objection?
1: Well, I think that um like if I'm going to be honest from just a technical standpoint, no. But if people are really concerned about the consolidation of industrial forces, and the centralization of power in service of technology, there are sharp and difficult critiques to overcome there if you want to give those people room in the debate. Um, And so I think there is, I mean, the socialists love to say, just put public ownership on it, and it resolves that problem. And that's not entirely incorrect, but seems to sort of like miss the point of the concerns of the anti-tech crowd. Uh, that I think are very real, the conviviality thing that we were talking about before, you know, and so I think rather than saying like that's an unserious argument that you shouldn't have to pay attention to because electricity or whatever is so important, we should really talk about what tradeoffs look like and that that's the way to encounter that argument, you know because the whole plan that we were going to do a decentralized more convivial like renewables and biomass thing has led to greater managerial consolidation farther away from public control and even more difficult to understand because it has added entropy and unnecessary complexity. And so it has not really provided the reality of the anti-tech vision. Um, So I'd say that that's like, Maybe it's just me because I'm in some ways a return bro uh, over um, invested in my opponent's arguments in that way. And I find them the most interesting or the most compelling because it just technically it's the best. Mm -hmm. It just is. The waste is the best part. It's the easiest to handle. It's the most safely stored. Uh, It's the most energy dense with the fewest negative trade-offs you can get out of any industrial system. Uh, And it lasts the longest, unlike coal plants. Uh, nuclear, ages like fine wine. It gets better over time as you refurbish it. You know, like we, in, in America, well, some of our plants operated above like, um, they operate at almost at 90% or above capacity. That's crazy, <laughs> that's crazy successful, you know. Um, and I've already sort of talked through the labor, big and small working together sort of thing. So, um, you know, people might be worried about like weapons or stuff like that. It would be like beyond the movie, the Rock with Sean Connery to figure out how to turn the waste into weapons um level of like I don't know uh ne'er do Wells getting up to that uh, I think it's just the safest and the best, so um I've read tons and tons of critiques and have found all of them coming up short
0: yes, I was actually I just read a few um kind of bullet points prepared by uh whatever, think tanks or something like that before, you know, coming in. And even to me, an untrained eye, they all seemed retarded. <laughs> like, <and laughs> just, you know, it's just the things like, um, like uh, at, at the moment, four, 444 plants supply 11% of global electricity. That was a stat that they came up with. Uh, it's been estimated by their calculations that you need 15, around 15,000 plants in the world to supply global, the global grid, um, which just doesn't seem to to work out that way. Yeah. I mean, even, (laughs) even so it's, you know, essentially that was their argument that, you know, imagine, you know, if you're scared at 444, how scared will you be at 15,000? You know, how many... Right. The fear of big (laughs)
1: numbers type thing. Yeah. (laughs) So... Here's here's a good back pocket thing for people that might not be convinced. Again, you can check out some of my articles on this or whatever, on the history of nuclear and how it came to be demonized and how it's, in fact, part of the American nuclear establishment's fault that people are scared of radiation when I don't really think that they should be. If you've ever taken a plane, you've been more uh, exposed to radiation than any nuclear plant would expose you to, probably. Um, But one of the things that uh, I learned from Robert Bryce is that the lower your energy density the higher your resource intensity, right? So if we take a solar farm, a wind farm, not very energy dense, the capacity factor, which is basically what people talk about, like, okay, let's say this is 15 megawatts or whatever. How often are you going to get that amount of electricity from it? Say 15% of the time, 30% of the time for solar wind, depending on the season. And you need a lot of land and a lot of resources to harness that energy, right? Nuclear has the smaller land footprint. Like a buddy and I, uh, Adrian, we wrote a piece for the Bellows on this and we sort of did some back of the napkin math and we were like, well, what would it take to do wind and solar for the entire US grid based on 2019 consumption? And it would take up the size of like Ohio, 80% of Ohio. And you're like, oh, that's not too big, you know, maybe. Maybe. Then we compared that to what it would be for nuclear, and it was smaller than the size of Chicago, where I live. So you're talking about all of that natural land, and we didn't even factor in transmission lines, because you have to build these things far from where the energy is needed, because that's where the weather's the best for them, and then build big transmission lines to hook them up. So the lower your energy density, the higher your resource intensity, right? That's really the transition that um, it gets sort of misunderstood about coal. The reason why we did coal is because it is more energy dense than wood. Mm-hmm. Right? England starts running out of wood. They start buying it from America. Everybody's, anybody will do what they can to keep the children warm at night. So they're just walking into the forest and chopping at whatever the fuck they <laughs> feel like. You know? <laughs> um, that's the way that goes. You know, people will find a way. Uh, and And that's why, that's why nuclear is so impressive as an achievement. Uh, it is very, very fascinating to me that it ever came to be at all. It is even more fascinating that it's one of the first times society has seen an increase in energy density and then walked away
0: from it. Yeah, That's almost, the fascinating problem. I think there might be an element of kind of these vivid um, kind of images or kind of this vivid imaginary that's related to, you know, accidents. And it, to sure, me, it seems like yeah. whenever I, I talk to someone about nuclear, they're like, oh, you know, fallout, you know, it's, it's very much tied to the media. It's very much tied to all sorts of either movies or, or, you know, culture. There's cultural... a great book
1: on that, honestly, by yeah. David Nywert called The Rise of Nuclear Fear and what he, he even traces it back to like ancient myths. Um, and things like that, but that it is really about this diffusion of images uh, that create our lexicon for discussing uh, dangers around nuclear. And again, to give people who were frightened of nuclear their due, some of them, I think, were basically evil Malthusians uh, who knew exactly what they were doing. Um, But just for the random person that was just like, I don't know what this is, I don't know what's going on, Three Mile Island, nobody got hurt, horribly handled. Yeah. by the industry, just like the worst comms ever. I mean, that Netflix documentary is basically bullshit. You can check out. I've, a couple I've seen studios. it
0: and I yeah. was like, and then we're just waiting, like, so who, what, what, how, ha- who died? What's going on? we <laughs> yeah, were what, like, just waiting here? to yeah. see, so
1: <laughs> what yeah, happened? what's What's
0: going on? Yeah. And,
1: you know, I think, um, uh, it is very hard for us today to understand the, first of all, to use a term that's oversold these days, the trauma of the post-war experience. I mean, a lot of assumptions about how history was going to move and the nature of human beings was evaporated by those experiences, and not for no reason. People were very scared because of things that they had seen and experienced. And I don't want to be cheap and discount that. And when you see sort of these grand strategy, Cold War nuclear missile psychos, it's really difficult to not say, well, the utility guys who build nuclear have a relationship with the state and these things seem to be related. And it's all part of this like cabal of old white dudes who seem to fucking run everything around me. And I don't like that. You can sort of create a sympathetic account for why people didn't trust what's happening there. And look, sometimes that trust was broken. I mean, I found this fascinating quote from Betty Furness, the actress, who was like the lady of Westinghouse, you know, used to be one of the premier nuclear reactor builders. Now they're more of a decommissioning company. But they built tons of appliances. And she was sort of like Ronald Reagan was for General Electric. She was like the person who uh, was the face of their advertising. And by the 60s and 70s, she's saying stuff like, you know, you gave us teflon and didn't tell us it would kill the cat. Like you gave us the pill and didn't tell us we were guinea pigs. You know, she has this whole list of ways in which people felt betrayed by the post-war pro-growth, managerial, heavy in the commodities, uh, you know, industrial complex that had supplied America with its opulence. So if we can sort of contextualize all of that, there and then, see what the energy crisis and stagflation did in the '70s to that entire mode of thinking and operating. I think we can come up with a more nuanced, appreciative account of why this paradigm shift happened at all.
0: Yes, I think um, it's, it's interesting. I have I have one memory of a conversation I have with my dad when I was younger. My dad died when I was fairly young, but he was a hydroelectric engineer. Hell he was yeah. building hydro plants That's so cool. <laughs> all over the Soviet <laughs> Union, obviously, because that was, you know, he was kind of like a top guy in his field. One of those old white guys, literally, who was, you know, <laughs> building these things, doing the upkeep and everything. I remember, you know, he you know explained to me how the microwave works and all sorts of little things that I just remember. And I remember him having a rant about nuclear. And he said it's a miracle. And he was like, you could see like a sparkle in his eyes because, you know, he obviously built the hydro plants and then they took them to, you know, plants in the Soviet Union. He worked on the Chernavoda plant here because it's on the Danube. And I think it's it's part of a hydro complex as well. So he was there when they, you know, set, set things up. God, um, that's so
1: amazing, Alex. That's what a fantastic <laughs> man he was!
0: Wow. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was. He was like an inventor. He had so many patents to his name. He like spoke seven well, languages. Like, out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, How fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. He was. He was like. Um, I'm a child of a second marriage, so he was quite old. He was, you know, when I was seventeen, sure, sure. he died to like sixty-seven, or you know, just just the the way things happened. But, um, it, yeah, he's just awesome guy. And I just that's one thing I remember that he was so. Bullish on nuclear. Yeah,
1: man, yeah.
0: It's, it's part of our family lore. So how could I not be and how could I not, you know, invite someone as knowledgeable as you to, you know, <laughs> give me a bit more context about why I should be bullish on nuclear. Yeah. Um. I mean, hopefully um, other people see the light too. Um, And before I let you, I want to ask yeah. you the question of the show. Everyone gets asked this question. Uh, do you have a subversive thinker, Um. you know, living or dead, whoever you think is interesting, uh, that people underestimate or, yeah, that's just underrated that people should check out.
1: Yeah. Um, oh God, I thought about this and it, was so <laughs> um, it was so hard. Um, it was so hard. cause the other thing is like, I don't really know like what's subversive, like things feel very protean right now. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll say that like, um, Uh, I I mentioned, I don't know how subversive he is, but I think people should read Christopher Lash's book, The True and Only Heaven, Mm -hmm. Progress and Its Critics. I think it's a That's a best Lash. Yeah, it is. I mean, John Updike, who was his roommate at Harvard, said that it was his magnum opus. Yeah, they actually used, they were sort of competing against each other as fiction writers. And then at some point, Lash understood that Updike had surpassed him. And he was (laughs) like, I think I'll become a historian. Um Darwin. Uh, yeah, and Updike used to say that Lash had that uh, you know, Hemingway-esque plain style. And so when Lash went to write the sort of writing manual for students at the University of Rochester, uh, in a nod to Updike, he titled it Plain Style. Um <laughs> but it's a fantastic book. There's plenty to think of there. Over at Exhaust Um Binder, Paywall and Patreon. We did the whole thing. We read through the entire thing chapter by chapter. If you want some thinking partners for going through that and to sort of motivate you to move chapter to chapter, uh, you can check that out. Um, but with or without, without us, I think people should, that's that real shit, uh, from yeah. him, you know,
0: that's excellent. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, and I got to get out of this room real quick. I will say everybody should reread the Republic, uh, every couple of years.
0: Okay. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emmett. This was super informative. Just, the best, you know, summary of the situation. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on. This has been a long time coming. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Catch you later. Bye. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.